Um, this morning we're going to read the, uh, chapter 2 of Judges, verses 1 all the way to 23. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land I, that I swore to give your, to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the, all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their, of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to, to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for, for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet... They did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, and who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died... They turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive them out, or sorry, drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Okay, so chapter 2. If chapter 1 of Judges, which we talked about last week, if that showed us, as most introductions do, introductions summarize a book, and chapter 1 summarizes what will happen through the rest of the book that Israel will start out pretty optimistically, pretty well, and slowly lose their faith, slowly slip into disobedience and anarchy and eventually civil war. Now, if that's what will happen, 
this chapter, chapter 2, which was arguably the original introduction before someone tagged on the first, this one tells you why Israel falls. It's much more of a theological introduction to the book. It tells you, very importantly, not just what happened, but exactly why it's happening. And it's very important for us to see that. And what happens is this. Israel, in the book of Judges, is fallen into a cycle. Okay? And we'll put it up on the screen what this cycle is. And this happens over and over. Every time there's a new judge, the cycle rebegins, restarts. It begins with them doing evil. And we'll talk about what this is and why God is so angry in a second. So they do something wrong. They contravene God's covenant with them. And when that happens, God says, fine, I'll give you exactly what you want. And he hands them over and lets them have what they're asking for, which is another king. And these foreign countries come in and oppress them. And over time, the period of time ranges, they begin to groan under the weight of this oppression. And when that happens, they cry out to God. They don't repent. Nowhere in the book of Judges do they ever repent, but they cry out. And when they cry out, God in pity says, fine, I'll help. And he sends a judge. And that judge comes, a judge or a deliverer. And we'll talk about those words as well. And that judge comes and he helps them. He saves them, rescues them from their oppressor. And for all the life of that judge, things look pretty good. They get rest. They seem to be somewhat orthodox in their worship of God. But then, inevitably, what happens is they fall back. And so Israel, in the book of Judges, has a cycle. It just keeps going round and round and round. With every judge, the cycle recommences. However, what we learn here in verse 19 is every time they go back, it says they were more corrupt than their fathers, which means it's not just a cycle, but every time it restarts, they're lower, they're less obedient, which makes it not a circle, but a spiral. They're slowly getting down and becoming more and more corrupt. And so every judge that passes, there's 12 judges in total in the book of Judges, but only six, half of them, are given extended talk stories and narratives. The rest are very quick. And all of the major ones, it starts very optimistically with Othniel, which we'll talk about at the end today, but it progressively becomes worse and worse and worse. They become more corrupt, less like the Israel they should be every time. And eventually, of course, it ends, as I said, with anarchy. By the end of the book, there's anarchy, there's no rule, and they end up in a civil war and nearly wipe out one of the tribes. It's a, it's a mess. Now, in this passage, however, you have God speaking more than he'll ever talk again in, in all of the book of Judges. It's the only time he's really verbose. And it gets to be so much that the further they move from God, the less they hear from him, the less he speaks, to the point of where if you know your Bible and you get to the book of Samuel, it says the word of God was rare in those days. Because this, we're talking 300 years. Judges spans probably a 300-year span. And by the time you reach the end of it, God is silent, it seems. Either he's not speaking or they can't hear him or both. And so here, though, he speaks. And as he speaks, he's revealing a story. And the story he's telling about why Israel is in the place they're in and they're, where they're going is he tells a story of prote uh, protection, a story of destruction, and a story of restoration. Okay? We're going to see those three stories being played out in what we just read. So let's begin with protection. So God is angry. He's anger. His anger is on display here. Four times in the passage we just read, we, he, we're told that he is upset. And, well, three times and once into chapter 3, verse 8. So I'm going to talk a little about Othniel, the first judge at the end. So he's angry. And not just angry, but in your community groups this week, you're going to wrestle with one question that says, what does it mean when it says that every time Israel went out, 
He was against them for their harm. And the word harm is not just the word harm. It's the word ra, which means evil. When it says that there's a choice in the garden between the tree of, of good and evil, that's the word. So it means that God is against Israel and bringing evil to them. How do we wrestle with that? Right? It's a challenge. It's what I love about the book of Judges. It forces us to say, who is this God? So we'll wrestle with that. But God is angry. And when we ask, why is he angry? There is no ambiguity. He is very clear about why he is angry. Idolatry. Simple. We can talk about the social ills in a culture, how there's an injustice and oppression and poverty. Those things are bad, but the root of them is always idolatry. You cannot fix the poverty and the injustice without addressing the idolatry. This is biblically constant. And churches who claim otherwise, you should not attend. <laughs> adultery, adultery and idolatry is the core problem, says God, of all of humans, humanity's problems. Now, I realize here that this is problematic, and some skeptics especially, like I was, say, boy, this is an issue. But let's talk about this first. Whenever it says that God is angry, here is what follows. Israel did what was evil, and they served the Baals, verse 11. Verse 13, they abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Verse 19, they're going after other gods and serving them and bowing down. Verse 7 of chapter 3, which we'll talk about in a minute, they forgot their Lord, the Lord their God, and serve the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so, what we are seeing here in Judges is God is jealous. Here's the problem with the world, right? We hate the idea of a jealous God. And skeptics, I can hear the rage, because I remember thinking, how can we be claiming that a God is good who is jealous? Because human jealousy is a nightmare. So why is it good when we apply it to God? As a skeptic, I thought, it's just contradiction, it's these stupid, naive Christians, <laughs> they don't understand it. So we're going to try to understand what first, in this first point, what is happening here. And the reason I say this, is a, uh, this point is about protection is this. Jealousy can be good and bad. There's good and bad expressions of jealousy, even amongst us fallible humans. And what helped me to understand this best was a quote from a guy named J.I. Packer, who's a theologian, which seems to not be relevant, but I'll, I'll explain what he, why it struck me. He says, the jealousy of God is the praiseworthy zeal on his part to preserve something precious. Now, what Packer gets right here is he says jealousy is always, always seeking to preserve something that it finds precious. So whenever jealousy arises in us, I ask you to do this. Ask yourself, I'm jealous right now for something, which is always connected to envy and resentment. What is it that I am protecting? And because, let me use a biblical example, then, then real, our life examples. So in, in the Bible, jealousy, the negative side of jealousy, comes out in, in a place like Saul. King Saul is jealous and envious of David's reputation and his growing fame. And he worries that David is robbing him of his glory. And out of that envy, because David, what is Saul protecting? Saul is protecting his ego, his self-interest, his position, his reputation amongst the nation. And so... Out of that resentment comes this jealousy. And left unfettered, unaddressed, that jealousy leads to anger, throwing spears at David, hunting him, trying to kill him. And so he is trying to protect what is precious to him, which is his throne and his reputation. Now, in the world, in our lives, listen, there's so many things we get jealous about, it's almost comical. But think about one. Um, when a coworker is promoted above you, before you, there's jealousy. And the reason there's jealousy is because deep down you think, 
He doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. I deserve it. They've got what is mine. And there's resentment and envy coming in. And what you're protecting is this thing in your head that says, I am better. And I can't be worse than that person. Otherwise, what am I? When, when a family member or a friend comes into money, if you're a poor person or a person living low middle class, and you have a family member who's near who's really wealthy, boy, that sucks, doesn't it? It's hard. And the reason it's hard is because you can't help but see how they can go on vacations and you're stuck at home. How their kids can go skiing and your kids are playing sorry at home. Right? And it's so... <laughs> a guy who owns... You know which one I am. Um, <laughs> but you see, it's so easy to not be, be grateful for them, to be happy for them, to rejoice the fact that, they've, that God has blessed them because all you see is that is that what you don't have. And so what happens? You go out to dinner with your spouse and you talk about that person or that family member and all you say is, yeah, they have all that money, but do you know they don't go to church? You know, They have a great career, but it's at the cost of their relationship with their kids. See what we've done? Our jealousy has allowed us to cut them down because we can't stand to be in the presence of someone who makes us feel small. And so jealousy on a negative side does exactly that. It is not concerned for the other, only for me. So in that regard... Is that a clap? No. Surely nobody's going to clap at that. <laughs> Sorry. Got caught off guard by that one. Um, <laughs> so, so bad jealousy protects and feeds our insecurity. Okay? It tries to preserve that insecurity rather than try to put it to death. Now, there is good jealousy in the world as well. And biblically speaking, the good jealousy comes out really clearly in a, in a line by the Apostle Paul. Um, in for, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, he says this. For, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, he says it's a divine jealousy. It's really the word theos in Greek. So it's godly jealousy. And Paul seems to think he knows what God's jealousy is like, and he thinks he is expressing it. And what that jealousy is, is he said, see what Paul is doing? He's not jealous for his own reputation. Like, hey, I planted that church in Corinth, and now it's falling apart. It looks bad on me. It's not what he's protecting. What he is preserving and what is precious to Paul is not his reputation, but their relationship with Christ. What he's worried about is that they're being led astray, and as a result, that marriage, but that fidelity to Christ is being broken. So here we have good jealousy. Jealousy, as J.I. Packer says, seeks to preserve something precious. The question about jealousy is not good or bad. The question is, what are you preserving? What is it that's precious to you? And to Paul, in the case of the church at Corinth, what is precious is their unity with Christ, their salvation, their faith. And because it is other-focused, it is something that is good. That's a good jealousy. In fact, you have the same thing. When someone is leading your children away, when they slip into an addiction when they're dating somebody who you don't approve of, when they're being led away, you get a godly jealousy because your interest is for them, not for you, hopefully. And as a result, you do exactly what um, a theologian, and he's actually the principal of the Toronto Baptist Seminary right now, named Kirk Wellam, says this, that God's jealousy manifests itself in the salvation of his people and the just condemnation of all who stand in opposition to him. And so... God, when he's angry here, his jealousy, it's not because he is trying to preserve a limited amount of glory, right? Like Saul, 
It's not like he's saying, if you don't worship me, I've got nothing because I feed and I live off the worship of people. Listen, God does not need your worship. If God of the Bible needs anything, he is not God. Okay? Because if you need anything, you are not to be worshipped. If you need water, then water has power over you. Right? If God needed our worship to survive, then he would not be God. We would be God because we would have something he would need from us. And so when God gets angry and jealous, it's not because he's a glory hog. What the problem is, is first, he deserves it. Okay? He deserves it because he is completely other-focused. He's focused on you. So he deserves your worship. But also because he knows that what he is trying to preserve in his jealousy is your relationship with him. And you cannot function and be at peace unless you are in a monogamous, monogamous relationship with him. And because of that, when something threatens to drag the people of God away from him, he gets angry. And this is what Packer is saying. It's his praiseworthy zeal to preserve something precious. God is so focused on you that he will rescue you from whatever is threatening to take you away from him, and he will smash that thing to pieces. And if you think that sounds harsh, tell me what you would do to someone trying to take your child away. You would want to smash that thing to pieces. And that is a godly idea anyway. Of course, when I say I'm not suggesting go out now and start causing trouble. But this is what is good, a good form of jealousy that we all have. And so, what we see in the first part, all through, not just this chapter, but all through the book of Judges and all through the Bible, is God, it's a story of protection. It's God saying, I know you want to run away from me, and something is trying to take you away from me, but I won't let it happen. And he's continually trying to protect and preserve our relationship with him as the people of God. Okay? So that's the first thing. It's a story of protection. But it's also a story of destruction. <laughs> because as much as God is committed, I put rebellion, but it's destruction. Sorry, that's a Carl typo. As much as God is committed to your preservation, your relationship with him, you and I are committed to destroying it. And you don't need me to be me to see this. Every cycle... Every cycle we talked about, every single judge, on seven different occasions in the book of Judges, you read this line. Can we put them up there? I, it's small, so I don't expect you to read them. But you'll notice they're almost all verbatim, except for one thing that's added, the word again. Every time a new judge starts, it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And it happens again and again and again. It happens so often that that is a trigger. When you read that in the book of Judges, know you're starting a new story, a new cycle, but you're going to see the same thing just worse. And it's intentional. The author of Judges, the narrator, is trying to get you to hear it like a dripping faucet, like a droning engine, over and over and over again. Israel is completely committed to running away from God. They won't. They won't stay to stay near. Every time, chance they get, they're running away. And the reason is, that's a question we have to ask, why are they so committed to their, like, how do we see this? Why do they keep slipping and the first hint we get is in verse 10 that we read, when it says that there was a generation that was risen up after Joshua, and they didn't know God or what he had done. And so, another question we can wrestle with is, when you do not know and have an experience of God, it's very easy to run from him. So these, this generation grows up, partly the parents' fault. Our job as parents is to tell our children who God is and what he has done. If they have no knowledge of God, we can't blame them for running. But they also have no experience, it says, of God. They didn't know the works. They hadn't been there. So this isn't a big emotional thing. However, Christianity is an objective 
religion and a subjective one. Objective, meaning there are truths and realities. God is real. Even if you don't feel saved, you're saved if you're a Christian, and so on. But there is a subjective reality. If you have never felt free, if you have never felt the love of God, if you have never felt the grace of God, then there's a very good chance you have not met God. And this generation grows up not knowing God. And there is both the head knowledge and the experience. They don't know. They may have met him in books or in their dad's comments and their dad's sermons, but they haven't met him themselves. And as a result of that lack of knowledge and that lack of experience, it's a lot easier to leave God, which they do time and time again. Verses 12 to 17 say that they abandoned God. They went after other gods. They bowed to other gods. They served them. They, it's graphic, they whored after other gods. And it's willful. Those terms are all willful. It's not like they just forgot, it was negligent. No, they abandoned God, meaning I know you're here and I'm leaving. So it's a willful run from God. It wasn't just accidental. And here's something that may or may not, take it for what you want, but it might just be a hint of something even more tragic. As I said, you'll never hear that the people of Israel uh, repent in the book of Judges. They cry out in their anguish all the time, right? But they don't ever repent. They want relief from their pain, but they don't want to repent of their sin. The only time you hear the word repent really pop up is here, and it's the opposite. In verse 19, it says that after they have fallen, they turned back and were more corrupt. That turn back is the word shuv, which means repent. Now, are we being told here that they will not repent of their sin, but they do repent of their faith and go back to their idols? The only hint that maybe think maybe it's nothing, but it's interesting that just a few verses earlier, it says they turned back or turned aside, and it's a different Hebrew word. So he could have used the same word, but he chose instead to say they repented and turned back to their idols. Israel is a mess. It's a nightmare. They're running away. They're willful. Now, Although Judges is filled with these individually terrible sins, individual and corporate sins, grand sins, atrocities, that's actually not the scariest part of the book of Judges for us as Christians. The scariest part is how terrifyingly and frighteningly ordinary their descent is. And the way you see it in this passage is by the names of the idols that they follow. So they follow, three different gods are mentioned here that they follow, the local Canaanite gods. There's Baal, there is Ashtoreth, and Asheroth. Okay, they're different, different terms. And they're all different gods. If you know the Hebrew here, you know what they're saying. First one is Baal, you've heard that. If you're a Christian, he's riddled throughout scripture. He's a god of the Canaanites, but he is specifically a storm god. Okay, he's a god of the weather. He's the Canaanite Thor, if you want to call him that. The next one is the Ashtaroth, which in the Hebrew says Astarte. Now, if you know your Canaanite and Phoenician gods, Astarte is the goddess of war. And the last one, Asheroth, isn't a typo. It's slightly different, but it's the, it's the goddess named Asherah. And Asherah is the goddess of fertility. So when you see these things in, together, they are the gods of weather, of war, and of agriculture. In an ancient pre-industrial world, what is more important to your survival than the weather, war, and the food supply. And so what you see is they're leaving God because they have felt needs. Yes, okay, I've got this God, thanks for taking us out of Egypt, but now I've got real problems. I've got no crops. My kids are dying. There's an enemy coming, 
and there's these other gods of the, of the region that promise me specific help. And so they start following these gods because they're practical. And before we get too high and mighty thinking, well, we don't do that. Yes, you do. Constantly. Let me use examples. And it's, this is why it's so terrifying. It is so subtle. It's a, we call, you can call it the carbon monoxide of sin. You don't smell it, but it's killing you. When you have a financial problem, okay, you need money in a bind, or you're worrying about your, uh, your, your retirement. Okay, it's practical. See, this is, this is why it's so subtle. It seems like it's good. It's good to be worried about. You want to be pr- uh, practical. You want to, uh, to be a good steward of your resources. But when you need money in a bind, our knee-jerk reaction is let's go to a bank. Let's find a, uh, you know, I need to make money quickly as a pastor, and I don't have a pension. So what am I going to do to re- plan for my retirement? Maybe some nice way to invest my money that'll multiply the money, a scheme of some type. Maybe it's legitimate, maybe it's not. We find all of these ways, the lottery, those loans, all kinds of little things. Now, when there is that financial need, that thing I turn to and hope to provide for me is my God. But it can mask itself as good stewardship. I'm just being a good steward. And it may be, maybe you are just a good steward, but maybe not. Maybe you are so worried about your future that you're trusting in the, the scheme or the interest in your RSP rather than trusting in God. And it's subtle. Think about your health. When you have health problems, where do we turn? First we turn, and it's good, we should turn to doctors. We should turn to, the, to medicine, the things God has given us. But it's a fine line between trusting that and trusting God. Let me make it very clear. You will never die until God says so. Never. doesn't matter what happens to you. And if that is premier and primary in our hearts, then our faith is in him. And of course we want, we'll be shrewd, we're not going to go to, we'll get chemo, we'll do all those things, of course. But that fine line of what I am trusting is very thin. And this is why whenever we read the Old Testament and you want to feel superior to Israel, you know that the, the author has you where they want you. He wants you to think, Look at them, look how dumb they are. And then to be caught and say, ooh, that's me. Because you, are, you and I are Israel entirely. We are the ones, because think about Israel, they're just trying to survive. They come out of the wilderness, they've got kids, and they just want to survive, they need to, to live. When Sarah and I moved here to Niagara a few years ago, the first thing Sarah did as a very smart and prudent wife and mother was start to ask questions about where are the good markets? Where are the schools? Where are the doctors? Uh, what we would probably should have checked out was when the power goes out for six days, what do you do? <laughs> See, you try, as soon as you come into a new place, you try to figure out how are the locals living so that I can survive here. And, that, and one side is very shrewd, very wise. But all through, one of the things the scholars note about the book of Judges is everywhere it says, and they lived among the Canaanites. It doesn't just mean they lived there without being touched. It means they began to live like the Canaanites. Because it's a very fine line between living with them and around them and living like them. And we slip slowly into this. Um, One of the things this reminds me of is um, in 1961, I was not alive, but in 1961, there was a trial in Israel for a man named Adolf Eichmann. You may know, Adolf Eichmann was a bureaucrat, but a key part of the final solution or Hitler's Holocaust, the Holocaust. Vital part. And the woman up there, Hannah Arendt, was a Jewish philosopher, and she witnessed the trial. 
And she became famous because she wrote an article in which she, she coined a term called the banality of evil. And the reason was she looked at Eichmann and she was expecting to see a guy with horns, you know, somebody who looked evil, you know, like, you know, hunchback, I don't know, whatever. Think of your stereotypical evil. And yet when she saw him, what she remarked at was, she was he didn't look evil, he looked neither perverted nor sadistic, but terrifyingly normal. And when you, if you were to have walked through ancient Israel at the time of Judges, you would not have seen Jews with horns. You wouldn't have seen them kicking children or taking their candy, pushing old ladies over. You wouldn't have seen it. What you would have seen is people trying to live, just trying to figure out how do I survive the next day. And that, simpli- that, that hiddenness of evil is exactly why we fall into it and why the book of Judges is always trying to show you how slow how gradual, how innocuous is your fall. And so, no Israelite at the time would have said, oh boy, I must be an object of God's evil. They would have thought, I'm the people of God. No one in this room thinks that they are the person I'm talking about, but you probably have someone in your life you're going to share this sermon with because you think they're the problem, right? And yet, that's not what Judges is saying. It's you. And even if you don't think it's you, the, the faithful Christian says, Lord, show me. Is this me? I think things are going well, but where have I drunk the cultural Kool-Aid? Where, is it, where am I slowly sliding? Because you and I are Israel. Without a king, we fall away from him, bit by bit. And we're committed to this destruction. This is Judges. You're going to keep falling and falling and falling. And so, it's a story of God trying to protect and preserve our relationship with him, despite the fact that we are trying to run from him at every moment. And this leads to the last point, which is how it's also a story of restoration. This is the hope here. And now, if you read the first 11 verses of the next chapter, chapter 3, which I would have read, but I was trying to... I know it's difficult to sit for seven minutes of reading. The first judge appears. His name is Othniel. This judge is the judge by which every other judge in the book of Judges, I keep saying the word judge, will, will be measured. He is perfect. He comes from the perfect family. We hear nothing about any character flaws. The moment God sends his spirit into Othniel to save them from the hands of Kushan Rishathayim, this Mesopotamian god, or sorry, uh, king, Othniel obeys immediately. And he doesn't just obey. If you look at the Hebrew, you see just as they were given into the hands of their enemy, Othniel delivered them from the hands of the enemy, meaning he completely reversed their fortunes. And all the 40 years of his life after their, this, this, this deliverance, Israel is faithful. And so Othniel, and he hit, remember, Othniel, his, his father-in-law is Caleb, like perfect father-in-law. His wife is Oxa, this shrewd, incredible woman of the Bible. So he is being presented as the gold standard. But here is the problem, not with Othniel, but with the whole system of judges to begin with. Even this perfect judge, this best judge that they could possibly muster in Israel, could only give them 40 years of peace. Because the moment he died they went back to their ways and worse. And so what is going on? What is the hope here? How is there hope for a people who refuse to be saved, who continually run from God? This is the old John Calvin line. John Calvin says, you know, um, you and I as human beings, depending on the rate of run, running is different, but if God is at the center, the moment you're born, we're all running in a different direction. Now you may be running faster, some are sprinting, some are going slower, But make no mistake, we're always running away from God. And then Calvin says the only hope for him 
for us is if God comes and overtakes us in our sin. If as we're running away, he comes like a good football secondary cornerback, runs and says, ha-ha. And he won't let us get past him. And that's the only hope for us. So how can God do this to a people who continue to run away? And the hope is actually brilliant. It's the first two verses we read in this chapter. It says this, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? This made sense to me, and it made much more sense to me when I read a quote from a guy, I'll, I'll lay it out there, my favorite Old Testament scholar. His name is Michael Wilcock. Brilliant. Passed away now. Here's what he says about this passage. It is as though the Lord is saying, I have sworn to give you the whole of this land, yet I have also sworn not to give it wholly to a disobedient people. You put me in an impossible position. What is this you have done? And by what fearful means do you think I am to solve my dilemma? Now, see what he's saying? It's so good. God, especially if you know Genesis 15, God comes to Israel, goes to Abraham and says, I am going to give you everything I've said, even if it costs me my life. He says it very hard. We go through Genesis 15, but this is the promise. I have promised I will give you it all, but I have also promised I'm going to give it to my faithful people. But you refuse to be faithful, so I have to either kill you or something else has to be done so that you and unfaithful people will get what only faithful people deserve. By what fearful means am I to, do you think I am to solve this dilemma? And this puts God in the position of saying, well, let me do this. In the book of Judges, I'm going to send these kings, these saviors. And there's two words used for judges in the book of Judges. The one is judge, which is shofet, which means administrator. He's a judge, like a, uh, like a, like a, a judge. <laughs> You know, who would uh, hear, would rule over cases and so on. Deborah is a judge. But there's also judges who have a particular task of being deliverers. And that's the Hebrew word, Messiah. And the Messiah, as he says, will come and save Israel. So the Messiah will come and Yeshua you. So the Messiah will come and Jesus you. So God says, I am going to send Messiahs to you. And I'm going to come and they're going to save you. And of course, they keep falling and falling. So the only possible hope for Israel, and we see it here, is when God says, I'll never give you up. That means we know that in spite of us, God will save us. And how? We have the hint here. He's one day going to have to send a Messiah who will never die. Because once the, once the Messiah dies, they kept falling back. So whoever this Messiah, this Moshiach in the Hebrew is, whoever this Moshiach is, he must not just live forever. But in order to... Get you, the unfaithful people, what only faithful people deserve is he's going to have to do it all right for you. He's going to have to be faithful on your behalf. He'll have to carry you on his back because you're not going to do it. But there's still the problem of sin. Someone has to pay for it. This is that fearful means that Michael Wilcock is mentioning. The only way that you can have your sins paid for is by him. And so one day God says, yes, it's a mess. Yes, you won't, you won't stay with me. But I will make it right by one day sending a Messiah. And the reason Judges is so important, one of the many reasons, is it's going to show you these portraits of Messiahs that are almost right. Almost right. And they prepare you for the right one that is coming. And so, Jesus is this Messiah, the Moshiach, who will Yeshua us, Jesus, once and for all. And then we will get what he deserved for his faithfulness because he will get what we deserve for our unfaithfulness. This is literally the gospel. 
And so Judges is not so much God trying to save Israel as much as trying to show them how they cannot be saved by mere human judges. Something more has to come. And it prepares us for the something more that is coming. If you're a Christian, rejoice. This Messiah has come. If you're not a Christian, just look at the world. Just look at the world and what you're hearing here, what you read in Scripture, and you ask, just ask this question. Does the script, the picture of humanity and the world and history that the Bible gives, does that present you with an accurate portrayal of what you see in the world or not? Does, it, does the world look like we can't seem to get it right? Or does it look like, no, there's still hope. Trudeau will do it one day. Trump will do it one day. Scientists will do it one day. Are you still clinging to that? So look at it. And the, the good news is, the good news is in that misery. The misery is it's not going to get any better. The good news is there's one who's come. And it can get better. But there's only one way, and it's Christ alone. Let's pray.